BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and to teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Earnings season, of which, of course, we're in the middle of, requires its own terminology. If you don't know the classifications, you won't know why stocks go up or down. Because management rarely, if ever, says, uh-oh, things aren't going well. Tonight, after a day where the Dow inched up 27 points, the S&P advanced 0.28%, and the Nasdaq gained 0.61%, I'm going to explain to you the lingo, the terms you need to understand the action. Not to mention recognize when the action's wrong. These are the actual terms that big money managers use when they're trying to figure out what to do when they're going through earnings season. First, let's start with the easy ones. These I call the continually good quarters. We just got a few of them today and tonight, none of which should have been surprised. But because of macro concerns, there were worries that the numbers might come up short. The first two great ones were Pulte Group, that's a home builder, and Sherwin-Williams, you know them, Paymaker. I'm kind of blown away by Pulte. Strong earnings, margins, uh, orders are fantastic, cancellations so low, and expectations. Wow, they beat them. It was quite simply one of the best quarters of the entire year. What's incredible is that tomorrow the Fed's likely to raise interest rates, and that, that should be hurting both the margin story and the forecast for homes. Yet it isn't. Every time the Fed tightens, it makes current homeowners less likely to sell because they lose too much money on their new mortgage payments, which are much higher. That results in a massive housing shortage supply, hence the endless strength in housing stocks. Sherwin-Williams, well, it rallies because there's strong demand for paint, coupled with a continued decline in raw costs. Margins expansion, yes. When expanding margins come, when you least expect them, stocks go up big. Uh, now, don't forget, they also have double-digit growth in protective and marine and commercial property maintenance. You know what? Residential repainting sales were good. Doesn't that make you think that maybe Cheryl Williams, uh, instead of being hurt by higher mortgage rates, is actually doing quite well? And it makes you think also that maybe you should be a buyer of Lowe's and Home Depot. Yes, you want to extrapolate from Sherwin Williams because that was just too good a quarter. Yes, a continually good quarter if, if there ever were one. Now, if there were a category for another consecutive great quarter, that would belong to General Electric. 
which reported sharply better than expected new orders, and big business in services. By the way, that's where all the money is really made because GE's got this razor, razor blade business model. You sell the engine to a playmaker, and then you repair and service it for years at 70% gross margins. The real kicker here, GE has yet to even spin off its Vernova renewable energy business. But it was a pleasant surprise with some really great traction in wind currently onshore and soon to be offshore. I can't believe how quickly CEO Larry Culp has turned around a previously pathetic business. But then again, this is Larry Culp. Best there is. Alphabet also fell into the continually good quarter category when it reported a terrific number after the close tonight, sending acceleration of growth in search, in YouTube, and in Google Cloud. One could also argue, by the way, that Microsoft belonged in the consistently good category this evening. Now, I thought the numbers were fine, especially the giant Azure cloud business, but apparently not enough to keep propelling the stock ever higher, given its tremendous gains over the last three months. Now, I think it just came in too high. Both are charitable trust names, and we will have full reports tonight on for members only, of course, on each of these numbers in depth. You know, as I mentioned last night, I continue to fret about the Justice Department's monopolistic case against Alphabet, as I told you. But I recognize a continually good quarter when I see one. After the continually good quarters, what's next? Okay, we have another category. It's called the first good quarter. We just had two, one last night and one this morning. The first is NXP Semiconductor, the chipmaker with a big presence in autos and the Internet of Things. NXP had been having a tougher time of it. But after this nice upside surprise, management said the trough is over. And the previous quarter uh, marked the bottom in the cycle. This was the last bad quarter. This was the first. Uh, it was therefore we had the first good one right now. And I got to tell you something, I thought it was really good. When you get the first good quarter after a trough, you get a chance for a big run. I think this one in NXP is just beginning. The second of the first good quarters that we got was a bit of a shocker to me. 3M. This one's been dogged by litigation, overhangs, and some endless revenue and earnings misses. All of a sudden, though, 3M is beginning to put all these issues behind them reaching a solid settlement with the most important groundwater spoilage claimants. Meanwhile, it's doing better in multiple divisions, including autos, highway infrastructure, sounds like an infrastructure bill there, huh? and perhaps, and even personal safety. CEO Mike Roman even raised his full-year earnings outlook to 860 to 910 from the original 850 to 9 bucks. That's how a big move begins. It belongs in the category of first good quarter. And for a serial disappointer, a first good quarter, and don't forget this is a dividend aristocrat, is a very big deal. Stocks don't tend to stop after their first good quarter. Now let's get tricky. If you want the most bang for your buck, I mean, but there's also the most risk, you should try to anticipate the last bad quarter. That means you have to get in before management says business is bottom. Dicey, but when it's, what happens, it's, incredible. it's breathtakingly rewarding. And that's what happened today with Charitable Trust holding Danaher, which now has put up three not-so-hot quarters in a row, but indicated that things could be getting better, or in some cases, couldn't get any worse. Now, Danaher makes high-tech equipment for the medical and pharmaceutical businesses. They're heavily reliant on both biotech and China, both of which are in bad shape. But that's why I smell a bottom and want to get ahead of it. As we told club members in our proprietary morning meeting, we'd buy Danaher right here, right now, if we weren't restricted by our own discussion. Because we think this quarter truly marks the bottom. If I'm right, 
The last bad quarter of Danaher represents a tremendous buying opportunity. Next category up is the first bad quarter. Oh, no, we don't want these. The winner and new champion of that category is RTX, the company formerly known as Raytheon Technologies, which is having a giant recall of engines that's going to put the wood to the free cash flow. RTX totally kiboshed a story about record string of quarters uh, and fantastic orders. Just brutal. CEO Greg Hayes had to come on Squawk on the Street to spell out the considerable cost to the company and its customers where he told me there will be make goods. Keep those customers happy. Silver lining, RTX has 13% organic growth and a mammoth order book, perhaps the best it's ever had, as was the case with GE. RTX told you that anything aerospace is just blowout strong. They also had very good defense numbers, and it was the first bad quarter thanks to the engine recall, and you have to wonder if there's another shoe to drop. You always do. We address this one with club members as RTX has been in our bullpen a long time. We'll reconsider our next move. And I have to tell you, I am a big Greg Hayes fan. I think he's a straight shooter. It may be the first bad quarter, and it actually might be the last bad quarter. Not sure yet. Finally, they're the quarters where the market may be just plain wrong. Now, we have one on later tonight, GE Healthcare. That's another chapel trust name where we've been waiting for the stock to come down because people don't seem to realize that you'll need their machines if you're going to do anything useful with all these brand new Alzheimer's drugs. I think GE Healthcare could be the biggest and best beneficiary when it comes to implementation of these amazingly important drugs. Why not listen to CEO when he talks, when we talk to him later? I like this story very much, but I want to learn more because it was a confusing quarter for some. Hey, you know what? The market was initially wrong about General Motors because it was confusing too. We had a decent quarter there, but Mary Barr, the CEO, glossed over the fact that there might be a strike that could really crush the earnings later this year. We know that the UAW are itching for a fight. GM was too glib about the whole matter. And its stock, which was up nicely, pirouetted back down when Barr prematurely dismissed any union worries. With this fiery new UAW leadership, a strike could be in the cards, no matter how much cooperation Barr thinks there might be. Bottom line. Now you have the most important earnings season categories. Let's go over them again. You have the continued excellence. You have the first good quarter. You have the last bad quarter. You have the first bad quarter. And you have the confusing quarter. I know it seems cumbersome, but that's truly the behind the scenes nomenclature that fund managers use. You just have to figure out what you got your hands on before you do any buying or selling. And remember, there are a lot of different grades. A lot of different grades of excellence. Alphabet truly put up good numbers tonight. Microsoft less so, but only because of the lofty expectations caused by a staggering run in the stock of what I always used to call Mr. Softy. Lori in Massachusetts. Lori. Yes. Hi, Jim. How are you today? I am good, Lori. How about you? Good. Um, I watched your show about a month ago, like I always do every day. And on that show, that particular show, um, you mentioned some Gen Z companies. And one of them was Celsius Holdings. Yes. And I've been watching that stock go up every day. Well, I finally bought it at 145. Okay. And I'm wondering if you have 
Any thoughts about it maybe going Yes, I do. I higher? think you're in great shape, Lori. I love what PepsiCo's comments, they have a stake in it. What PepsiCo said about the, about the quarter and the brand tells me that Celsius is in for the long term. We've liked it ourselves on the show multiple times. I think you're in great shape. I want you to stick with Celsius. All right, that might be cumbersome, might be a little difficult to understand, but before you do any buying and selling during earnings season, please make sure you're able to distinguish the good quarters from the bad quarters, what went right and what went wrong, because that will determine the direction of your stocks. Man Money tonight, subscribers to the CBC Investing Club know that we've been focused on GE Healthcare. And after reporting its second quarter as a standalone company, I gotta run through the numbers with the company's CEO. Then in a typical tightening cycle, consumer credit seems to fall apart. And over the past week, we've seen some cracks in this pavement. So is this a warning of things to come? I'm digging the situation. And the IPO market has been busy this summer. So what should you make of the newly listed stock of Oddity Tech? I'm sharing where I come down on the name. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This morning, GE Healthcare reported second quarter's independent company. The maker of big-ticket medical equipment, pharmaceutical diagnostic supplies, and digital healthcare solutions. It was spun off by GE at the beginning of the year. And while its stock initially soared, it spent the last few months bouncing between the high 70s and low 80s. Now, this time, GE Healthcare turned in an excellent set of numbers. Better than expected sales, up 9% on an organic basis. Five-cent earnings beat off at 87-cent basis. A meaningful guidance hike. Yet Wall Street seemed unmoved for the stock. It finished down 0.5%. Mystifying. I think it's a mistake with investors overlooking a lot of the great positives here, including some real momentum in the Alzheimer space. And that's why we told members of the CBC Investing Club they would be adding to our position GE Healthcare once our trading restrictions let us. And that's what we're going to do. But don't take it from me. Let's check in with Peter Arduini. He's the president and CEO of GE Healthcare to get a bit of a situation. Mr. Arduini, welcome to Man Money. Hey, Jim. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm glad you're here. I think that there's a perception 
that GE Healthcare is all over the map. But what it was was you were part of GE and you've been able to be much more focused. And I thought you might be able to explain to our viewers exactly where you play within the healthcare system and how your business is accelerating since you left GE. Yeah, Jim, look, it's a it's a great question. And uh, the focus for us really is we are a major facilitator of how hospital systems run throughout the world. If you think about our imaging equipment, everything from basic X-ray to a cardiac catheterization to the MRIs and CTs, ultrasound, all of those capabilities uh, we provide to, to run a hospital, as well as many things used in the OR. We're the number one anesthesia machine provider, monitoring player. So we, we have many of the products that are used as healthcare grows throughout the world. And obviously, as all of us are getting older, populations growing, this is driving a lot of demand. Now, yesterday, Philips competitor reported a number that actually was, I felt quite disappointing. And it took down your stock. I, when I look at the numbers, I have to believe you are gaining share uh, because your numbers were so much better. Or those guys just don't know what they're doing and your business as usual. Well, I like to think it's really the former, though. You seem to be kind of really gaining on the system. Well, look, I think, you know, we've been focused as we came out to be able to drive our strategy, which a part of it's about accelerating growth, part of it's optimizing for profitability, and a big part's building out this precision care strategy. I would say we've been quite balanced about looking at share, I mean, creating more value, either getting some price growth in some of these great new products we're having out, and some share. But look, the reality of it is in the last year, we've done reasonably well in markets around the world, particularly here in the U.S. from a new technology introduction and, and being able to capture some share. Well, I, I'm the, the chief spokesperson for the American Brain Foundation. And one of the things I'm absolutely certain on is, is that everybody uh, will want to get some of these new drugs that we're talking about, particularly Alzheimer's, uh, and try to find out whether they have it and whether they're entitled to it because it's very expensive. And what we decided right. at, at the foundation is, is that you're going to have to darn prove that you've got something wrong, maybe a plaque buildup, something that's different. But you can't do it without a, a machine. And I think it's going to be your machine that determines who gets the medicine. Yeah, look, I think for Alzheimer's disease, I think it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's just a breakthrough moment for patients. This is such an important window of time here that I think we'll look back on about how some of these new therapies coming out are really driving change. But as I mentioned earlier, as a facilitator to kind of a disease care pathway, which in this case is dementia or Alzheimer's, we play a big role. So you mentioned baseline MRI, and then many of these products for label have to have actually understanding how much plaque, in this case, amyloid beta you have, and we make the PET CTs or PET MRs, and also the radiopharmaceuticals that help quantify it. And then you follow up later for treatment, safety follow up on treatment, and and see how things are doing. And so, yeah, we will play quite a big role. And part of what I'd like to do and our teams are doing is meeting with big hospital systems as well to help, you know, sherper them, if you will, through the process. Think about their fleet, where they may need products. And so it's going to be an interesting next couple of years as these products grow. But I'm super excited for what it's going to do for patients. Well, I know that there's a book to Bill ratio that says that it's good. It's better than it was. Same time, it's always been strong. But I, I tend to look at the uh, ultimate situation. Isn't there far more demand than supply right now in your industry? Well, it's, it's clearly up, Jim. And I think, you know, ever since COVID, I think more patients are coming into the system a little bit more sicker than maybe they were, or they put off procedures. So if we look at our backlog of patients looking to get procedures done, 
it's really at an all-time high around the world. And so that typically requires a demand for more imaging to do the procedure, whether it be a hip or a knee or a vascular procedure. So yeah, we're seeing good growth that way. Can you tell me what you're doing in artificial intelligence that makes it so that it's a better patient experience? Yeah, so AI is a really important aspect of our world. Just to, to put it in perspective, us and our peers that are, make imaging equipment generate probably half of the data that's in a hospital system just because of the quantity and size of the imaging data. And so we've been very focused on data management. A couple phases of AI. One is AI inside of our equipment. Uh, behind me, you see uh, there's an MR here. That's our premier MR that's actually have products that actually help change the reconstruction model so that you actually get better image quality but I can take a 10-year-old system and make it 40, 50% faster. Those are some of the changes. And then down the road, what we're working on is what we call multimodal data integration, which is how do you bring all these different modalities, uh, biopsies, information together and have AI direct the clinician, you know, smart choices uh, to move forward with. And so there's just a, a host of different things that we're, we're looking at. And last thing, I know that there were some people who were saying, geez, why didn't the stock run? I mean, GE still owns a lot of stock. Now, they don't have to tell you when they want to sell, but it's certainly a possibility that they could be a seller of stock in the near future, and maybe that is weighing on the company's stock? Well, I think, look, I think we're really happy with how the company's doing and, and our start to the year, our performance from when we launched and where we are right now. So in many ways, it's one step at a time. But but clearly, GE has their own strategies of when they're going to move out of the stock, and and as they've stated, you know, over the over this year, you know, they'll work to, to, to manage through that. So I can't speak to it specifically about how that plays out. But, you know, we're focusing on what we can control and we feel great about the first half, Jim. Well, and obviously with the guidance range, second half. Well, as a, a stock that is in my travel trust, I feel equally as great. I'm going to congratulate you on a good quarter. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That's Peter Arduini. He's the president and CEO of GE Healthcare, GEHC, which I think is radically undervalued. But I will tell you that I am concerned that maybe GE is a seller of stock. Man, buddy's back in today. Coming up, don't let cracks in consumer credit rattle your portfolio's foundation. Stick with Kramer. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. has been shocked by the stunning resilience of this economy. Normally, after 500 basis points of rate hikes, we have mass layoffs in a recession. A lot of stores would be closing. This time, we still got a 3.6% unemployment rate. For most of my life, economists said a number that low is effectively impossible. However, over the past week or so, we have begun to see some potential cracks 
in the consumer credit space. So we need to take a closer look at what's happening here. Now, in a typical tightening cycle, consumer credit falls apart first. Now, that really hasn't happened yet, but we need to keep an eye on nascent problems in case they become real problems. Let me take you through them one by one. First, we did get a huge disappointment from Discover Financial Services. That's one of the largest credit card issuers in the country. It's usually associated with lower quality borrowers. Discover reported last Wednesday and the stock plunged nearly 16% the next day. Ouch! Look at that, will you? What went wrong? All right, to be clear, Discover missed on both the top and the bottom line, and part of the earnings hit came from higher than expected reserve bill. Now, that's something you need to do when you're really worried about people defaulting. In total, Discover's provision for credit losses, which consists of reserve bills and total net charge loss, was $1.3 billion. Now, that is up a staggering 140% year over year, including a 115% increase in total net charge loss, meaning bad debt that likely won't be paid back. The company's total net charge off rate came in at 3.22%. That's very high. It's up 122 base points year over year. Not great. But you've got to remember that they're up against some insanely tough comparisons. Magnum says the current numbers merely reflect the normalization of the credit market. I'm a little dubious. That said, these credit card, uh, credit card quality concerns are not what obliterated the stock. The real culprit? These guys disclosed a, and I'm going to just use quote marks here, credit I described a card product misclassification issue. Card product misclassification. See, basically, since 2007, Discover wrongly classified certain credit cards into its highest pricing tier, meaning they were taking a much larger cut from the merchants who take payments through these cards. Only merchants and merchant acquirers seem to have been hurt by this, not consumers. But it could cost the company a few hundred million dollars to settle the issue. Meanwhile, Discover's pausing its buyback while they wait for an independent law firm to figure this out. I don't like that at all. That's what hurt the stock so badly last Thursday. And it's worth noting that Discover has bounced back a bit off those lows, but there wasn't anything in here that I really liked. Next yellow flag, Equifax, one of the few major consumer credit rating agencies, also reported last Wednesday night, and it saw, saw its stock plunge nearly 9% the next day. For Equifax, the quarter itself was mixed, with a slight top-line miss, but also a three-cent earnings beat. See, the real problem here was management's guidance. Equifax issued a much worse-than-expected outlook for the third quarter. It also lowered its full-year forecast across the board. But after looking into what happened here, while there were some concerning comments about the macroeconomic environment, management wasn't necessarily uh, talking about consumer credit in particular. Rather, Equifax cited a weaker U.S. mortgage market in the latter half of the quarter, as well as a weaker hiring market, which is bad for them. Because remember, when you apply for a job, your potential employer runs a credit check. The company expects both problems to continue for the rest of the year. That's not good. So again, I'm not hearing what I want. Hearing that the mortgage market's slowing, is that's suboptimal. Even as we got another terrific quarter from a home builder this morning, when Pulte Group reported a set of blowout numbers. And we don't love hearing about a slowdown in hiring, although it's not necessarily surprising to anyone who's been following the Labor Department's monthly employment reports. But if what you're worried about is consumer credit, I don't know. There wasn't anything in the Equifax report to freak you out. But finally, let's talk about a very visible one, American Express, which was reported on Friday morning and saw its stock sink nearly 4% in response. Until recently, this had been, one, one, been a source of great frustration for me because I knew for a fact that American Express was going to be a beneficiary of the travel and leisure boom. Yet the stock couldn't seem to get any traction. Over the past two months, though, Wall Street finally realized that we're not headed for an imminent recession. And then Amex's stock caught fire, running from the high 140s in mid-May to the high 170s right before it, it reported. 
Now it's pulling back again. But if you're looking at the quarter, I actually don't think there's anything particularly wrong here other than high expectations. The stock just came in too hot, and that's usually a recipe for failure. Technically, American Express delivered a mixed quarter, a revenue miss coupled with a solid earnings beat. But Wall Street was dismayed when management really reiterated the full-year forecast rather than raising numbers that you'd expect if things were really booming. And that's what many money managers were hoping for, and they cashiered the stock because they didn't get it. Now, like Discover, Amex saw a big increase in total provisions for credit losses. That number came in at $1.2 billion. Now, it's almost triple what it was the year before. Write-offs were up 147.5% year-over-year, while the reserve bill was up 464%. Now, those were both worse than expected, but please, we're not yet at the point where we need to worry about Amex's credit stats. Why? The company included a great slide in its quarterly earnings deck, where they gave you the trend of delinquencies and write-off rates, but it also shows that pre-pandemic levels in the fourth quarter of 2019 for both metrics, well, delinquencies were flat versus the previous quarter. So no problem there. Write-off rates inched up from 1.6 to 1.8%, but they still remain well below pre-COVID levels of 2.2%. I did not regard their support as a crack in the system. But given the performance post-quarter, I have to say, I feel a little lonely. Finally, we also learned a lot about the health of the consumer for the big banks. I didn't see any red flags here at all. Bank of America's gigantic deposit base and their credit loss numbers look a lot like what we saw from American Express. Worsening, but still much better than where they were before the pandemic. And remember, credit quality was considered fabulous by historic standards at the end of 2019. When asked about consumer credit quality in the conference call, Bank of America's straight-shooting CFO Alistair Borthwick said, and I quote, the consumer is still in a pretty healthy place, end quote. Hey, who are we arguing with Bank of America? In the end, this is what we do during earnings system. We look for themes. When I saw that Discover, Equifax, and American Express all got hit after they reported, I was indeed worried that cracks might be starting to emerge in the consumer credit space. But if taking a closer look, I feel much more sanguine about the situation. Discover tanked because of a weird classification issue that's going to cost the company hundreds of millions of dollars. And in the meantime, they had to pause their buyback. Equifax was hurt by a slowing mortgage market and a slowing job market. Nothing to do with consumer credit quality. And American Express, I'm saying it was simply a victim of high expectations. Sure, Discover and Amex are seeing a real pickup in bad credit card debt, but not to the point where these numbers are at all alarming. They're still way down from the end of 2019. Maybe a couple more rate hikes, like I expect one tomorrow, could ratchet things up, make me more concerned. But I think the issues aren't nearly as dire as the bears constantly tell you they are. So bottom line, at least for now, I'm not going to tell you there's anything particularly worrisome on the consumer credit front, even if some of the consumer credit-oriented stocks did indeed get hit last week. False alarm. But we must always be vigilant when the Fed tightens as aggressively as this one has. Let's take calls. Why don't we start with Vincent, Nevada. Vincent. Jim, good afternoon, Dr. Kramer. This is Vince from Las Vegas. Thank you, Vince. I'm developing a, a portfolio for my granddaughter. I wanted to include BlackRock as one of the cornerstones. What is your opinion? Or I think you couldn't that? do better than BlackRock. Larry Fink's going to stay on. It's terrific. He's got a good yield, got a great balance sheet. It's got great technology. People don't realize that. I think it's a terrific core holding, and you're doing it right. Let's go to Stanley in Florida. Stanley. Hey, Jim. First off, thanks for taking my call. Of course. Hope everything's well with you. I just Thank wanted to you. talk See. quick about PayPal. The QQQ's up 41% year-to-date. PayPal's down 1% year-to-date. What does PayPal need to do to catch up to its laggards? They, they have slowing growth. 
And when you have slowing growth in a market where you can have a, own a stock like a MasterCard uh, or anyone that you, I tell you, even American Express down here, I like a lot more. I don't like slowing growth no matter where I find it. I'm going to say Ixnay PayPal. Mary in Idaho. Mary. Greetings, Jim, from beautiful Idaho. Oh, so um, lucky. <laughs> I wanted to, first of all, tell you that what you forecast the market would do this week, it's doing. So <laughs> thank, thank you. you for the heads thank up. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. Better be better. Sometimes it's better be lucky than good, but thank you. I'm just in, in a very sanguine mode about the market right now. How can I help you? Um, I just like um, your opinion of. Procter and Gamble and your advice on what I could do, I should do with my shares. Okay, now Procter and Gamble is about to report. It reports later this week. We had a report last night from Unilever that was very positive. They raised prices on a lot of different things, and the sales did not go down. I think Procter's in that same unique situation. It's one of my absolute favorites. It's been a long time holding for my chapel trust, and we can follow up on anything you'd like if you just become a member of the CNBC Investing Club, which we cover wall-to-wall the stock Procter and Gamble. Okay, it's not time to wave the red flag consumer credit right here, even as many are. It's just worth keeping an eye on. There's much more mad money ahead. Oddity Tech rallied hard right out of the gate after its public debut, kind of like Kava. So have investors spotted an IPO that could have staying power, and is that market coming back? I'm going to take a close look at the story. Then a high-profile analyst pivoted from bearish to bullish. Why is this so significant? I'll give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. This summer, the IPO market, so important to the next leg of the bull, has steadily come back to life. And now, it started with Kava Group, that's the Mediterranean fast casual chain. And we've had a series of successful deals since then, including a very big one last week. I'm talking about Oddity Tech. Now, that's an Israeli company that makes beauty and wellness products, which it then sells online, using advanced machine learning models to show people what they want to see. They also use their data treasure trove to develop new beauty and wellness products. Hey, consider like the Netflix for cosmetics. Now, you might think this is just a digital cosmetics play. I mean, who cares? But Wall Street has a very different view of oddity. The stock was supposed to come public at $32.34, but there was more demand. So it priced at 35, and that's after they sold an additional 1.6 million shares versus what was originally proposed. I'm saying hot, hot, hot. When Oddity opened for trading last Wednesday, the stock was already at $49 and change, and it kept climbing for a couple days after that, printing a high of $54.20 on Friday before cooling off a bit over the last couple of days. I mean, dipping back to $48 and change. Still, I, I have, th- this is a phenomenal success to the point where I feel that we got to circle back and check under the hood. It's an important part of my thesis that we are at the beginning of a new IPO cycle where we can all make a lot of money. By the way, I am the only person who feels that way, but I don't care. I'm going to be right. I'm that confident. First, this is not just a consumer product story. There's a tech angle here. Oddity actually shelled out more than $100 million to buy a biotech startup this spring. They're using it as the foundation for a new initiative. They plan to use artificial intelligence-based molecule discovery in order to develop high-performance cosmetics and wellness products. Hey, look, this is the same kind of tech that let Moderna develop their COVID vaccine practically overnight. Now, you should always be a little skeptical when a company fills their IPO prospectus with buzzwords, and Audi's prospectus was full of that stuff. Uh, They're a disruptive technology company that's harnessing the power of AI. I know, blah, blah, blah. But, man, it's tough to argue with Audi's results. 
company has both tremendous growth and tremendous profitability. Oddity's net revenue nearly tripled over the last three years. In the first half of this year, the revenue growth rate actually accelerated to somewhere between 60 and 65 percent, according to preliminary numbers and perspectives. Although I wouldn't get too attached to that statement, given that it slowed to 38 to 48 percent in the second quarter. But when you compare Oddity to the 10 percent growth we're expecting from Estee Lauder, a sadly very disappointing stock for the Chapel Trust of late in its current fiscal year, or even the 26% growth from the much smaller ELF, Beauty, that's Elf Beauty, this company's clearly in a league of its own in a group people love. And this is not growth at any cost. It's extremely profitable growth. Audi's been turning a profit for years, even if you look at the most stringent metric, cold, hard, gap. Profits. Audi made $21.7 million last year. That's up 56% from 2021. According to the preliminary first half numbers, they're looking at more than a 100% earnings growth during that period. Although the big explosion was in the first quarter, with earnings growth slowing to somewhere between 25 to 50% in the second quarter. Very wide range. The balance sheet is also pristine here. Oddity had no outstanding debt as the end of June. Their cash flow from operations grew nearly fourfold last year. Are there any warts on this story at all? Look, I do tend to get a bit nervous with hot direct-to-consumer brands, especially in a fickle category like cosmetics or wellness, because that growth can disappear in a hurry. But that clearly hasn't happened yet for Oddity. Imagine says their data-informed project development process helps them get ahead of new trends. I believe them. Given the incredible success of the beauty brands, it makes a ton of sense to believe them uh, until they give you a reason not to, and they haven't. Now, Oddity has a private equity sponsor, the consumer-focused giant L. Catterton. But why I typically warn you away from private equity-backed IPOs, this one's different. There are two major issues to look, at, to look out for when judging these deals. Bad balance sheets and an overhang from the private equity sponsor winding down their positions. That latter one, you know, has always bothered me. But Oddity's balance sheet's clean enough to eat it off of. Not if you wouldn't necessarily want to. But they didn't get loaded up with debt like so many of these other companies. And let's be clear. I'm not particularly concerned about L. Catterton, not just because I like them, but Wall Street Journal reported these guys sold 4.3 million shares of their 18.2 million share stake as part of the IPO. And that was after selling off some more in the private markets previously. So they're down a little. They're not going to dominate. I think it's a Goldilocks number, frankly. Small enough that we don't need to worry about those guys dumping their stock and crushing the public investors. But it's also large enough that it's clearly an important position, one this firm might want to stick with for the long haul. My final concern is that Oddity came public in what we call a sliver deal meaning only a small chunk of the shares outstanding actually got sold to the public, just 21%. Now, that's almost always bad news longer term, because sooner or later you're likely to get hit with a damaging secondary offering. Almost every sliver deal in the last decade has ended poorly. But there's a post-IPO lockup on insider selling that doesn't end until January. So this stock could still have a nice run through the end of the year. Put it all together, and I'm pretty darn impressed with the oddity company. What about the stock, though? Hey, it depends on the price, like everything else. Well, we don't yet have analyst estimates for this one, but we can do some back-of-the-envelope calculations. Let's say they can earn a buck fifty per share this year. The assumption here is that they make as much in the second half as they did in the first half. Given that Elf Beauty sells for 61 times this year's earnings estimates, and Oddity's got much faster growth than Elf, clearly deserves a similar multiple, if not better. Let's be conservative. Let's just put a 50 times earnings multiple on it, much cheaper than Elf. You know what that works out to be? $75. $75 price target based on a rough earnings forecast for the full year. Now, if you want to be even more conservative and say that Oddity should only earn, let's say, a buck and a quarter, then using a 50 times multiple, 
you got a $62.50 price target. Either way, those numbers are a lot higher than the stock's current price of $48 and change. I like that. Here's the bottom line. Oddity is a rare combination of fast growth and healthy profitability, which is why the stock rallied so hard right out of the gate last week. And given where it's currently trading, it would not surprise me at all if this thing's got a lot more upside. Bye, 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 bye. Just remember, the stock's likely to hit a huge rough patch in January as that lockup on insider selling expires. If you want to wait for a pullback, maybe wait until then. Either way, the company's a good one, and perhaps it can even withstand some huge insider sales and still go higher. Man, money's back in for break. Coming up, Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Good pitch. Right back. Right, 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 and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski deck. Time for the lightning round. Chris is Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer. With none better just around the corner. Someone's been busy in the garden lately. How are you, you my gotcha, adorable Dave, lunatic you, friend? My beats came up huge this weekend. Big beat beats. Sounds good. That's uh, beat and raise, it sounds. Totally. Jim, Jim, this $30 billion market cap medical devices company has underperformed the market so far this year. What I'd say is well positioned for a turnaround. So, Jim, how do you evaluate Zimmer Biomed Holdings? Once again, Dave Illinois astounds. It's been uh, lagging the group. It's time for it to really turn on the Jets. I say bye-bye-bye, Z-B-H. Let's go to George Massachusetts. George. Yeah, Jim, I want you to know that I just signed up for the club. For your yes! And, we uh, will help! I own, a stock, I own a stock that drills for oil in the Permian Basin. They're, they're using artificial intelligence to improve the efficiency of their operations. They, they've just announced increased production guidance for the year. The stock sells at two and a half times, two and a half times next year's estimated earnings, and the enterprise value to EBITDA is only 1.7. What do you think of Vital Energy? VCL? You know, I've looked at Vital Energy, and i got to tell you, I do not share your enthusiasm. I do prefer, as you know, because you are a member of the club, Pioneer, PXD, we went through cash flow. It's the fastest growing. It's got the cheapest find. It is the way to go. I want you to be in Pioneer. Lowest finding cost, best there is. Truman in California. Truman. Yo, Jimmy Boyd. Yo, yo. Uh, about uh, six, seven months ago, you liked a uh, oil producer back, but was, uh, was looking good. I liked it as well. Took some down, low 20s. Ran to 30 almost immediately in the, in the next month. I sniffled uh, a bit, and then all of a sudden it came to my basis. I dumped it. However, now it's all the way back after management decided to uh, uh, enhance shareholder uh, value by bringing it all the way down from 30 to 10 $11. High well, peak energy. What's there what? are sellers of their companies that are shorting it, and there are uh, hedge funds that don't like it. And I got to tell you, insiders are buying the stock, and I am a believer in high-peak energy. I think it's a great situation to be a buyer of right here. It is speculative. Let's go to Dana in Michigan. Dana. Hi, Jim. Long-time fan. Love love your show. Um, I have positions in video game stocks, and my question for you is about Activision. Should I continue to hold 
But no, no, no. We ring that. the register Activision and we roll right in to take two interactive, which is incredibly cheap right now. And I think Strauss Elk is doing a fantastic Elk is doing a terrific job. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer made a call in 1987 that had him sitting pretty. But find out what difference a year made and how the lesson applies today when we return. The other day, a well-known strategist famed for his amazingly prescient bear call in 2022 issued a mea culpa of sorts. Instead, he misjudged the strength of this market. He didn't imagine it could allow such stretched valuations in a world of cost-cutting and lower-than-expected inflation. It was the honorable thing to do. Most people in this industry would try to weasel out of it, but not Mike Wilson, who opines on equities from Morgan Stanley. He explained why he felt so negative, and Kinley actually continues to do so. But he recognized that he'd been stampeded by the bulls, and he most certainly didn't see him coming. For most of this year, I've been riding Wilson, making cheap jokes at his expense, called him Mr. Wilson, the congenial neighbor of Dennis the Menace. I don't like that a highly paid strategist kept you out of this market this year, even if he did so well the year before. Now, I kind of regret the jokes, not because they were vicious. By my standards, all of this was pretty gentle. No, I regret it because I can count on one hand the number of strategists who ever owned up to mistakes in response to a changed market. Most of them prefer to endlessly dig in their heels, stay wrong. Of course, Wilson really hasn't become a bull. You had to get to page five after he detailed a huge slug of negatives that didn't pan out, or at least haven't pan out yet. But there it was. Few words you almost never read in Wall Street research. We were wrong. He ate the crow that others just can't swallow. I don't want to pick on someone who did the right thing and admitted when he was wrong, especially when so many other bears are still in denial. But the fact is, this bear-to-bull pivot was a lot harder to spot than Bose. You had to bet on the ingenuity of American companies who not only knew how to grow revenues, but also cut costs at the same time. You had to buy into the J-PAL playing for time thesis as he nudged rates just slow enough that it allowed for inflation to subside without wiping out the economy. You had to believe that there wouldn't be a bigger banking crisis, even when so many regional banks looked like goners. I'm still surprised there weren't more bankrupt. Most important, you had to believe that the market was going to broaden out Beyond just a handful of high-profile tech stocks, a market that clusters around just a few stocks with trillion-dollar market capitalizations is a market that feels mighty dangerous, especially when you can earn a cushy 5% risk-free for parking your cash in short-term treasuries. Yet that's the actual paradox that fooled so many people. I learned a long time ago that sometimes you have to make the toughest decisions to make the biggest money. In 2023 so far, there's been nothing tougher than staying bullish on what should look like very overvalued stocks when you can make that risk-free five. But the broadening of the rally this last few weeks was indeed the nail in the coffin for the pessimistic thesis. Because at a certain point, an emotional bear market becomes an empirical bull market. And that's what Wilson and so many others got crushed by. Hey, look, I know what this is like. Back in 1987, uh, I was in cash for the great crash, now known as Black Monday. It was an incredibly bullish call by me about a bearish market. I raised hundreds of millions of dollars based on, as a young fund manager, just kind of just getting it really right. But I also was convinced that the crash signaled something horrible about the future of the economy. I thought it meant that we're in big trouble. Yeah, people got real bullish on Kramer at the wrong time. By the second quarter of 1988, I knew I was wrong. There was nothing wrong with the economy. 
and I scrambled to recover and get fully invested. I missed a lot of performance, just like Wilson. I vowed never to be so certain about the legacy of a bear market again. And I learned a powerful lesson. Never overstay your welcome on the short side after a winning trade. The bears, including Morgan Stanley's Wilson, were dead right for most of last year. But they pushed their luck when times changed, which is why they've missed this rally every step of the way. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Disclaimer. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.